Well, good morning, and uh, thank you, everyone, for coming to hear about John Owen. Uh, This is going to be a set of five classes on the life and theology of John Owen. Um, Before we begin, though, let's pray. God in heaven, would you receive glory as we consider the life of John Owen? Would you give us humility as we consider... Uh, what application we might make uh, to our own lives as we consider his. Father, would you increase our joy in your son who controls all of history, Lord. Amen. Well, I've talked to some of you and, you know, there probably, there probably hasn't been a single day that I haven't thought about John Owen over the last couple of years and a lot of times that's felt like a burden as academic subjects tend to be from time to time, and that's what Owen has been to me more or less uh, over those years. He's been the subject of my research, his life and theology and uh, his politics and friendships, Um, but that's honestly probably more a reflection on uh, my own limitations approaching a subject like Owen who could be complicated, Um, and, and he was. He was a prolific writer. Uh, he wrote eight million words in his life, including a two million word uh, commentary on the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so he's very dense. Uh, he is difficult to read at times, but he is also very rich. Uh, there's a lot to learn from him. He's an amazingly fascinating figure, uh, and, uh, and, and he's worthy of our, our attention, I think. Um, you know, I want to say first, you know, when you approach, when you approach a figure in church history, uh, when you approach the discipline of history um, as a whole, more, more broadly, we're not approaching just a, a particular person or, or an event um, exclusively just to, to study them as a result of just our, our own intellectual curiosity that we, may, that we may have that. But we're approaching people and we're approaching events, uh, particularly as Christians, um, we're, we're approaching them as people who have lived and events that have taken place within the world God has created. Um, we're, so so in, in a way, when we're, when we're approaching history, we're, we're really considering God's providence and how he's worked out things um, in, in time and space. Um, and, and for us Christians, we're considering how he's cared for his church throughout time. And so I think there's, a, there's really an edifying reality uh, to learning from the past, learning from Christians of the past, uh, and, and there's a joy in recalling uh, how God has saved people, how he has called them uh, to himself. Uh, there's encouragement in remembering events of the past, large and small. When we come to Owen, we see all types of different events in his life that are worthy of our consideration, social and political Uh, We see times of gain, times of trial and loss. Owen faced all of these, and we can be encouraged as we look to people like Owen and and see what he thought, how he endured hardships, how he rejoiced in times of gladness, how he endured um, through trials in the various seasons God had given him. And, And so we come to Owen, and, you know, if you lived in 17th century England as he did, Perhaps some of those seasons would have looked to you as they did to him, often quite grim, gripped by war, plague, 
fear, death. You maybe could imagine having high hopes for an academic career uh, and then having those hopes vanish before you were ready to give them up and for reasons that were out of your control. You could imagine a stretch of maybe several years of unreliable employment, years of melancholy, sadness. You could imagine your country at war, your brother a soldier who would die in war, your wife bearing 11 children, and you having to bury every one of them before the end of your life. You can imagine looking out further and envisioning a life where you're now an esteemed uh, scholar, uh, you're, you're praised by the highest ranking members in society, you live in a castle, you walk alongside rulers and kings, they value your counsel. But even that soon starts to fade. Your friends become enemies. The reputation for which you've labored, it's gone. The church that you gather later in life, it's a richly cultured group. It's full of friends and neighbors. But even now, it becomes interspersed with government spies who are listening to every word you preach. Uh, They're surveilling your congregation. Times change quickly. And one moment you're a friend to your country and the next you're a rebel. So if you can imagine things like this, you've already begun to imagine what it might have been like to be John Owen. Uh, You hear the ups and downs, don't you? Uh, The the ebbs and flows. Uh, It's really stunning, I think, to think about the twists and turns that his life had taken. And so we'll we'll visit some of these over the next uh, couple weeks. Um, but I hope as we're, as we're going through some of these ups and downs, some of these checkpoints in his life, that we'll also begin to get at the heart of what it meant to be John Owen, get at the marrow, uh, get at um, you know, the spirituality of John Owen, that flame of God's grace that would sustain him, you know, that would carry him through uh, complicated times such as these. So I guess we could back up. Um, and just consider what it means to be a, a Puritan. What, if you know much about the Puritans, you've, you've likely come to associate them with a high level of spirituality, right? an intensity in Christian devotion and piety. This quote that was made famous by H.L. Uh, Mencken it is, in fact, not true. Um, the Puritan, I, I would... Say is a it's a term loosely defined um, as as those Christians who would follow out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, who wanted to see the church purified, right? Um, they wanted to take the work of the Reformation to its proper ends, and so that 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 means essentially to have the glory of God and Christ displayed through the ministry of the Word clearly, uh, and then they wanted that uh, that that clarity. Uh, of the Word of God to affect every facet uh, of the of their life um, they 've been called red hot pure uh, red hot Protestants um, in that way and it was into a Puritan home then that that John Owen was born in Stadhampton it was a small village southeast of Oxford, forty or fifty miles northwest of London. Uh, the year was sixteen sixteen as Historians will remind you that's the year that William Shakespeare died. Um, Historians of Owen will will speculate 
about the schedule of spiritual disciplines that uh, Owen's father may have instituted in their home, um, which we aren't told uh, by Owen himself, uh, but, but they, seem, they seem fair to me, I think. Uh, there, there probably would have been Bible reading, um, prayer, family prayer together, devotions and meditations, that sort of thing. Um, he would have learned his Bible growing up. Uh, but we don't really know too much about what Owen's life was like at home um, in the early days. But what Owen gives us briefly uh, later uh, in his life, he reflects on his father uh, in, a, in a quick bit where he, he describes his father, Henry Owen, as a painful laborer in the vineyard of the Lord all of his days. Uh, well, his father sent uh, Owen off to Queen's College, Oxford in 1628, so he's, he's age 12 which was not an unusual age to commence study in that day. Uh, he would read classics, and he would learn history and theology. You may have heard stories of people like the New England theologian Jonathan Edwards, who would limit the amount of food he would take in to not become drowsy, to have more time for study and limit his amount of sleep, uh, to devote himself to, to study, and the same was true of Owen. In fact, uh, his, his earliest biographer tells us that uh, he slept no more than four hours per night during his college years, uh, if you can imagine that, though later in life he would regret that, and, and he would actually uh, blame that lack of sleep on some of his physical ailments that he would face as an old man. But Owen was coming to Oxford in, a, in an interesting time. The school was changing. Uh, it had for a while been a fixture for uh, Puritan studies, for, uh, for a robust Reformed theological education. Um, there was a clear and plain style of, of teaching, of the way people would dress, a clear and plain style of worship. Um, and these would be characteristics of the Puritan movement. But, uh, you know, authorities in the government, they were becoming wary of Puritanism. Uh, Puritans were were viewed as radicals, uh, potentially dangerous um, to uh, the country. And so while Owen is at Oxford, the Archbishop of Canterbury, his name was William Laud, he was also Chancellor of Oxford, he ushered in these new religious measures um, to the school that to Owen ran contrary to his convictions about what education and worship ought to be. Um, for Owen, he felt like man was now becoming the center of Christian uh, worship rather than God. Uh, man was the focus of education rather than, uh, rather than God. Um, and, and, and for him, for others uh, too, uh, things seemed overly ceremonial, um, more, more outward acting, rather than, than inward piety. And so um, for Owen and a lot of students, it resembled what they knew of Roman Catholicism. Um, and, and in fact, the, the, there was the same type of tension uh, that, that Puritan ministers felt who were ministering within the established church, with, within the Church of England. Um, and uh, many felt as, as though they could no longer coexist within it, that the, that the quest of reforming the church um, was no longer something that could take place from the inside out. And so, um, it, much in the same way as, as Owen leaving Oxford, uh, they were bound by conscience to separate 
Um, and so this is, this is kind of how I would describe Owen's um, conviction to leave, to leave Oxford. Um, now, Owen was having impressions on, on his heart of what God wanted of him. Uh, movings, convictions, but he still lacked assurance of salvation. He wasn't sure he was a Christian. And people take different lines as to whether, whether or not he was a Christian at the time. He left Oxford. He left in 1637. Um, I, I'm not sure if he was a Christian or not. Uh, but I think the important thing when he's leaving Oxford is that um, he's, he's doing this as, as, as a result of, of some type of conviction that God had placed on him. Now, he left. He, he gained a Bachelor's of Arts uh, Masters of Arts, and by the time he left, he was probably enrolled in a in a doctorate uh, degree in divinity. Um, but that that uh, that lack of assurance that he had when he left, it wouldn't it wouldn't be resolved for several more years. And so, uh, so Owen, Owen leaves town, and he he's unsure now of, of what to do with his life. Um, and there's really little evidence uh, that we have now to know what he was doing over the next couple of years, where he was living, and that sort of thing. And so, but but what we do have, there's there's kind of a foggy picture that emerges that that you know tells us that that Owen was pretty troubled by this. You know, he has these high hopes for his for for an academic career, and and now it's gone. And so uh, we see Owen as as troubled, distraught, sad. Um, kind of over the new direction of things in his life. He eventually finds employment uh, as a private chaplain in the home of a man who is probably sympathetic uh, toward his decision to leave Oxford, sympathetic toward the Puritan cause. And so perhaps, you know, at this point, it's now 1641, and, uh, you know, things are looking okay for him. You know, maybe things are starting to turn around for Owen, uh, but the next year, 1642, war breaks out in England, and his patron gives his support to the king, and Owen finds himself supporting Parliament. And so here, you know, just after things may have settled down, Owen is at another turning point, uh, which would not only cause him to have to uh, leave uh, uh, his his job as chaplain, but it would also mean that he was he was written out of his uncle's will. His uncle was a supporter of the king, who had supported Owen financially throughout college. Uh, he, his uncle writes Owen entirely out of his will, um, and Owen is forced to uproot once again. So again, without clear prospects of what the future is going to hold for him, uh, he moves to London, a poor area in, in London. Uh, he lived in cheap accommodation at a place called Charterhouse Yard. He's apparently a stranger to everyone there, as an early biographer tells us. Um, but on Sundays, he would go and hear uh, different preachers in the area. And this is maybe where Owen starts to find hope. Um, the story comes down to us about one Lord's Day in 1642 that he had gotten together with a cousin of his um, to go hear a Puritan preacher named Edmund Calamy. Edmund Calamy was uh, a, a famous uh, Puritan preacher in this day, a celebrity of sorts. Um, and 
The thing was, Calumny never showed up. And people began to leave. His cousin wants to leave and go hear another preacher, but Owen stays. And so uh, I want to share with you the, the account we have of, of what happens next. Mr. Owen, being well-seated and too much indisposed for any further walk, he resolved to stay. If no preacher came, he would go back home. At last, however, there came up a country minister to the pulpit, a stranger not only to Mr. Owen, but to the entire parish. The man prayed fervently, and then he took for his text these words, Why are ye faithful, O ye of little faith? The text was Matthew 8, 26. And the very reading of the words surprised Mr. Owen, upon which he secretly put up a prayer that God would speak to his condition, and his prayer was heard. For in that sermon, the minister was directed to answer those very objections which Owen had commonly formed against himself. And though he had formerly given the same answers to himself without any effect, yet now the time was come when God was designed to speak peace to his soul. In the sermon, though otherwise plain and familiar, it was blessed for the removing of all of his doubt and laid the foundation of that solid peace and comfort that he afterwards enjoyed as long as he lived. Um, it's probably a, a familiar conversion story, maybe, maybe for some of us, maybe it resonates for some of us as God rescues us in unsuspected circumstances. Uh, but it also resembles a lot of conversion stories that we hear um, of, uh, or, 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 or stories of Christians gaining assurance of salvation um, that, that, we, that we see a lot in Puritan literature. Perhaps some of you even know uh, the story of the 19th century Baptist, Charles Spurgeon, and his conversion story where, where Spurgeon, we're told, is in the middle of a snowstorm and finds shelter in a, a Methodist chapel and uh, where, again, it's an unnamed preacher with little to say other than the text of Scripture. And, and you know, the, the story goes, um, he, he calls out to Spurgeon, young man, you look miserable. And you're, you know, and you're, and you're, and you're always going to look miserable in life and death. Uh, would you not turn to Christ? Look now to Christ and be saved. And he was. Well, Owen's story speeds up a little bit from here. Um, after gaining assurance of salvation, Owen begins to write. He writes a book that gains national attention, a display of Arminianism, uh, and ultimately it leads to his appointment as pastor of a church in Fordham, Essex. This was his first pastoral job. Um, now, Owen hadn't given much thought to the doctrine of the church at that point. He hadn't really thought about what he believed about churches, how they should be organized. Um, should there be overseers that ruled over the church? Should the congregation themselves be in charge? Should there be a body external uh, to individual churches that determine things? Or should individual churches maintain their autonomy? Should they have the ability to govern themselves? I hadn't really thought about these things much, but he eventually reads a book called uh, Keys to the Kingdom by a man named John Cotton, and he would be he would become convinced of, of congregational church order. Uh, but when he, began, when he began in ministry, you know, he, in a lot of ways he was unprepared for this first job. He says, I read Owen. Um, you know, it wasn't going to be an easy 
first job for him, the first pastoral job, uh, because he was walking into a church that had largely been influenced by the same uh, Laudian reforms that had taken place at Oxford that drove him away from Oxford. Um, and so we look to his writings and we see that um, you know, the spiritual condition of the congregation in Fordham, it actually became a serious burden to him. Um, he complains a lot in his writings uh, that the church was full of grossly ignorant persons and that they brought him continual sorrow. You ask, you ask why, why, the, why that type of language? And he tells us that they had little desire. Uh, they, they wouldn't labor to acquaint themselves with the mystery of godliness. And he tells us that it was a burden upon his shoulders goes on and on. And that their indifference unto the things of God that became a grief to his soul. And it's language that, that kind of causes you to pause for a minute, you know, just to consider the responsibility that a shepherd has for his sheep. You know, the, the care that pastors have uh, for the spiritual lives of people in their church. Perhaps it makes us long to pray for our pastors. You know, that, that as we're giving ourselves to the quest of godliness, you know, we're also asking that, that God would supply grace for pastors as, uh, for, for endurance, uh, for them to lead faithfully. But the difficulties would continue for Owen, you know, and that's the story of his life, frankly. Uh, uh, he would face the same difficulties as his next, at his next pastorate, um, not long after he had begun his first. Um, his family and he moved to a town called Cogshaw, where, where Owen would gather a church, which may actually, again, for, for a bit, have felt good to him, or maybe it felt like coming home in a sense. It, it definitely did for his wife, who is from Cogshaw. She grew up there. Her father worked in the town. Um, he, he, he got married uh, the, the, several years before while at Fordham, and uh, his wife's name was Mary. Um, and, he, and he was taking up these new responsibilities as, as a pastor with a growing family. Um, and so you can imagine he had some sense of optimism, maybe a, maybe a fresh start. Uh, they had a toddler. Uh, his name was John also. And within a year, they would become parents to two daughters, uh, Mary and Eliza. By 1647, though, both daughters would become ill and they would die. Eliza, the very next month after Mary. Heartache was, again, far from over. The next year, their infant son, Thomas, would die to illness. The year after that, uh, so would their firstborn son, John. So none of the parents' four children during these first years in Kagashaw would, would survive past age five. So the losses were staggering, but frankly, death was, it wasn't uncommon in Owen's day. Um, as you kind of reflect on like the context of, you know, this, these years as a pastor, you think that in God's providence, Owen was, was able to reflect on the family. Uh, he was able to reflect on the frailty of life and the, the, the importance of making the most of time together for the glory of God. As Owen looked to his church, you know, he wanted parents to raise up their children in the fear of the Lord. 
he tells us that he knows you can, he says, I know you cannot love grace into your child. You can't love them into heaven, though it be the great desire of our soul. Uh, and said that parents must then over time labor faithfully to nurture their kids spiritually, to instruct them in the basic doctrines of the faith with prayer and expectation and hope that the Spirit would quicken their hearts. You know, I've mentioned already that you know, for, for Puritans, private worship in, uh, by, by the families in the home, it was a big piece uh, to their, their spiritual lives. Um, it was a critical supplement uh, to public worship. And in fact, they thought that the furthering of the Reformation, it began in the home. Um, and so we can pretty surely place Owen in line with, with that thinking. Um, and so Owen writes two catechisms for families. Um, a catechism you know, is just a summary of Christian religion in the form of questions and answers um, for reference, but often for memory. And so the first of Owen's was, was a lesser catechism. It was for kids. Uh, and the second was, was his greater catechism. It was for adults. Now, the lesser one, was, it was 33 questions and answers uh, that covered you know, just the basic tenets of the Christian faith. If you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, Owen follows, Owens follows, follows that pretty, pretty closely. Um, uh, my family is, is using Owen's uh, lesser catechism with, with our daughter, and it's, we changed the words around a bit, but it, we found it profitable and, and enjoyable. Um, now, Owen's emphasis with these catechisms, it was to get families to train their minds, right? And, and not just to train their, train their minds, but to, to train their minds to think about God in the way that God had prescribed in Scripture, Right, so it was a way to, to help them th- think about Scripture, um, think about God in Scripture. Um, he thought this was absolutely important. Um, now he had written these while he was in Fordham, but he would go out into the streets, and he would do this again in Cogshaw. He would, he would go out into the streets and, and, and help, help teach people these, these catechisms. Um, he tells us that aside from preaching, Catechizing the church was the greatest need that they had. Um, so you've got to think that you know, Owen probably didn't expect to see the immediate fruit of that, uh, of, of this work he was doing, of, of educating a, a group who didn't know the scriptures, but it was a work um, that he was committed to. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, uh, he thought it was a work that... that that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He may be struck by his humility here when he's talking about uh, this ministry, and he tells us that the sincerity with which he performed this duty uh, in the midst of his own loss, it would be only for God, the righteous judge, to one day declare. And so it is really unclear what fruit there may have been immediately, if any, and it appears like there was none, uh, at least from Owen's accounts. Uh, and and again, he has he has some of the same complaints that he did at Fordham this time. He describes his congregation as a poor, numerous, provoking people who face daily troubles, pressures, and temptations. Um, well, the government 
was mandating that everyone in England attend worship in this period. And so Owen, uh, remember now he's a congregationalist, and, and he believes that the church is made up of the regenerate, that is Christians, uh, those whom the Spirit has brought to life, and those who have responded in faith to the gospel. And so while on Sundays he would continue to preach to his entire parish, this mandatory service that Parliament required, and they required that it, that it be ordered a particular way, um, Owen believed that it was still imperative that the true believers, those who professed Christ, still meet together around the Word. And so in, in private meetings on weekdays, uh, Owen would open up his Bible uh, and he would preach to his flock. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Um, the idea of private worship uh, to avoid political scrutiny, potentially severe consequences even. Uh, and so you, we see Owen begin to uh, think about how he might encourage these believers to live faithfully, uh, to have unity amongst themselves during uh, such difficult times. One way he sought to do that was through uh, the publication of a book. The shortened title was uh, Rules of Direction for the Walking of Saints. Um, and what the book did, it, it set forth a, a scripturally supported path toward unity and toward faithfulness within a congregation of believers. Um, and so it had seven principles for um, seven principles for the church toward their pastor, and then it had 15 principles for the fellowship uh, with one another. So I want I want to share these with you. So these are the seven principles that Owen laid out for the congregation towards their pastor. Um, The first was the preaching of the word and the administration of ordinances by the pastor ought to be diligently attended and submitted unto with ready obedience unto the Lord. The second was to observe their pastor's conversion and follow him only insofar as he follows Christ. The third was to pray for their pastor continually. Fourth, to honor and revere him. Fifth, be certain to provide financially for him and his family. Sixth, to stand by him and endure with him through trials and persecutions for the sake of the word. And seven, to assemble together, to meet together, to gather as a church. The 15 principles toward each other. To love the church as Christ loved the church. Continually pray for God to prosper and protect the church. Three, to fight and suffer for the purity of the ordinances, honor, liberty, privileges of the congregation against those who would oppose it. Four, to take care and to endeavor for the preservation of unity in the church. Five, be distinct from the world, from those who would conduct false worship. Six, meet together to use your gifts for edification and spiritual encouragement for one another. Seven was to bear one another's infirmities and weaknesses, um, you know, have a gentle spirit uh, toward each other and, and our failings. Um, eighth was to carry one another's burdens, you know, to, to have a gentle spirit toward one another and, and each other's afflictions and their miseries. Uh, the ninth was to freely give to your brothers and sisters who are in need. Ten, identify and avoid all causes of division 
uh, avoid false teachers, broachers of heresies. Eleven, persevere with the church. Don't draw back in times of prosperity or in affliction. Twelve, assume a posture of humility, counting everyone equal, showing no partiality between different people in the church. Thirteen, pray collectively for any among the church who are persecuted. Fourteen, be watchful over one another um, with, with mutual admonition to avoid disorderly walking. And then fifteen, work, or excuse me, walk in all holiness, godliness, and conversation unto the glory of the gospel, the glory of God, edification of the church, and the conviction of unbelievers. Uh, Owen thought these principles would meet the needs of Christians broadly, but especially his church and those who were gathering without the protection of the government, um, like his congregation here in Cogshaw. They could be persecuted. They could be removed from one another, even jailed um, for not meeting on the correct terms. And so the laity, they they faced a lot of pressure. It wasn't just Owen who, who faced this pressure. And so he... It was important for him to empower them um, to take up responsibility in terms of what it meant to be a church, what it meant to fellowship with one another. Uh, And so Owen would hold Bible studies um, throughout the week, and he would expect members to contribute to these. He would would invite them to speak freely about the text. Um, He wanted them to become involved, uh, to think about the Word, talk about it, engage with it. Um, On occasion, even, he would... um, have qualified uh, laymen preach to the congregation. You know, so this was another practice of encouraging leadership. Also shows him trying to raise up leaders. But then it also represented the, the conviction he had that, that the, the preaching of the word was, uh, and, and the conviction that may come uh, as, a, as a result, was really a work of the spirit, not a particular voice that was preaching. Uh, and so, again, Owen reminds us in his writings uh, that this was a time of what he calls woundings and troubles and sorrows and wants and poverties um, that his church faced as minorities in the religious scene in the 1640s. Um, but there's more going on, too. Um, England, England was at war. There's a war going on between Parliament and King Charles I. And in addition to the responsibilities Owen would have to his church, uh, while he was a pastor at Cogshaw, he was also called several times uh, by Parliament to offer spiritual wisdom uh, and encouragement for their cause against the king. Uh, And so he preached several times before Parliament between 1646 and 1649, uh, and Owen was gaining massive popularity. Uh, officials were starting to take note of his ability, his rhetorical ability, and his preaching ability. Um, one contemporary of his uh, recalled that the worth of so great a man, so eminent a light, uh, could no longer be concealed. His fame and reputation spread both through city and country. And so all of this was new to Owen. Um, who had, you know, very much until now been been under the radar, uh, but his responsibilities were growing. 
Right? He was now becoming a voice for the parliamentary cause. Uh, he thought personally that the king was a tyrant, and he hoped that he could see a day when his church uh, could worship without consequence or without hiding. Um, and so he, he became very bold um, in his language across some of these political sermons, um, and he, he wasn't really one to mince words. Uh, the defeat of the king, he would say, was a matter of recovering the liberty for their country. Um, and now he, he still feared that members of parliament uh, may still like to have a crack at their own uh, forms of religious uniformity. And so while Owen was, was trying to advocate for, you know, or excuse me, while, while Owen was, was condemning uh, the king, he was also trying to advocate for toleration as, as much as he could um, because those, you know, the, the future was still unclear for him. Um, but he was on a big stage now. You know, the, the politics of the later 1640s would, would take different shape. Um, and there would, there would become a possibility that uh, there might be a republic in England. Uh, and there was a rising independent class um, that was headed largely by what was called the New Model Army under Oliver Cromwell. Um, and so Owen comes to the attention of Cromwell uh, through his rise in, uh, in national popularity as a strong Christian voice. Um, before I go any further, though, I, I just, just draw back to this, that you know, Owen was first a pastor, right? Uh, he was growing in popularity, but he was a pastor. And, um, you know, he, he had been removed from, from his family and his church half a dozen times for these, these national engagements. Um, but he was about to get news from Cromwell uh, that he would need to be gone much more. Um, and so Owen... Uh, excuse me, Cromwell approaches Owen one evening with, with a band of his officers, and he says, uh, Sir, you are the person with whom I must become acquainted. And Owen apparently replies, That will be much more to my advantage than to yours, sir. Cromwell responds, We shall soon see to that. And Cromwell then reportedly takes Owen by the hand, and he walks around with him. And in the conversation that followed, uh, he requested that Owen accompany his army on their expedition to Ireland. So can you imagine what, what Owen may have thought? You know, he's, maybe he's intrigued, uh, perhaps flattered even. And you start to remember, yeah, you start to remember what, what was going on back at home, back at Cogshaw. You know, how his church was in such poor condition how they needed him. Uh, Owen had never left southern England his whole life, much less traveled abroad. And so his church was desperate that he wouldn't go. Cromwell would write to the congregation requesting that they allow him to leave, though it wasn't really in their control, and they would plead back that he not be forced to go. Um, You know, despite their struggles, despite what Owen called their ignorance, their weaknesses, about, you know, these things that Owen complained about. They loved their pastor. You know? and so you kind of get a glimpse there when they're, they're fighting 
to not let him leave, you get a glimpse of some of the intimacy that was forged between Owen and his people, you know, between a young pastor and, and his sheep. It was, however, out of their hands. And uh, on July 2nd, 1649, Parliament ordered that Owen uh, accompany the army with Cromwell, uh, and Owen would be going to Dublin. So, um, Lord willing, next week we'll pick up there and consider what that trip to Ireland meant for Owen and what we might can learn from him. So, does anyone have any questions? I've just got a question about him preaching under like such restrictions because you mentioned that everyone was required to go to church and he had to preach in a the service had to be conducted in a certain way and I was wondering how he felt about that about having to to preach to people who didn't want to be there in a way that he didn't want to and and um, like if he had qualms about that. Obviously, he didn't like it, but theologically, how, how he dealt with that. And also, if there was a difference, do we have evidence that his preaching was substantially different when there were people that were forced to be there compared to when he was more free to? Yeah, so I'm not sure that we have evidence that there was different um, uh, different, different uh, things that he was saying between and, and in the public meetings versus the private, though you, you suspect from the context that there, there were differences. There are differences later in his life uh, when he's under even tighter uh, restrictions. Uh, there's even more at stake after the restoration. Um, and so uh, we don't have those, those sermons from, from that he was preaching to uh, his church in these private meetings, but you suspect that they were. Um, in terms of qualms, he definitely had qualms about it, and that would be something that Owen would become known for throughout his life was this fight for toleration and fight for religious liberty. And, um, and he would go on to be extremely influential uh, in that whole enterprise of religious toleration. He would influence people like uh, William Penn, um, uh, who would become a Quaker. He would influence John Locke um, and some of his writings. They would. Uh, Locke was a student of Owen, and we'll talk about that in future weeks. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a point of tension uh, for Owen um, and uh, one he would become more explicit, explicitly against later on, uh, but one that, that definitely he wasn't happy with at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how bright was the uh, flame of the Reformation still burning within Owen's time, about 7,500 years after, you know, the 95 Theses? And who, which of the Reformers most influenced Owen? You mentioned Tom Cotton. But were there specific Reformers that Owen sort of sat under and, and was taught by early on? Um, Owen, the flame of the Reformation was as, was as bright as ever. You know, I, I, I've been drawn to Puritan studies because a lot of the, the fruits of the Reformation you're beginning to, you're beginning to see now. You know, you, people are beginning to write and, um, doctrine is, beca- is beginning to be articulated in ways, you know, it frankly hadn't, uh, until, until then. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the Puritans, 
um, are are building on the reformers. Owen Owen uses Calvin um, regularly, but he Owen also uses the the Church Fathers and Augustine. Um, yeah, he yes, and uh, um, so Owen's consistent with with what you see from other Puritans, like you know Thomas Manton and Thomas Goodwin, uh, uh, Richard Baxter. Owen is in the line in line with them in in many points, um, but uh, but yeah, they they saw their work as continuing on the Reformation. So to them, it was. Uh, building on the reformers was just a matter of Christian obedience. Um, yeah. It seems he's always looking for the truth, not a certain. What's this? Oh, <laughs> how cute! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it looks to me like he's always looking for the truth. He's not trying to build this or build that or build this, but he's looking for the truth. I don't know whether I'm missing it, but that seems like what he's doing. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely fair to say. You know, Owen, like as you see at his time in Oxford, where we're unsure if he's if he's a Christian at this point, but he's still making big decisions based on conviction, and uh, and he he would always be that way. Um, uh, but over, over time, Owen would become more crafty in how he would um, go about uh, maintaining his integrity and uh, along, alongside, um, uh, you know, not, not getting in trouble, right? So as in early life, he would, you know, leave Oxford or, um, you know, in the later years, he would try to, you know, maintain integrity and take a stand for truth. While also, uh, he would get he would be getting better at avoiding consequences. You know, he might. Um, some people say he he backtracks on certain things he says, and some of his polemical opponents will call him on that, and uh, and and he'll 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 make a habit of denying that was that he, type of thing. Was he being wise as a serpent? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I certainly take the line, um, maybe a less critical line of Owen. You try to think of about being a, a a Christian with his convictions in that day, and what what does faithfulness look like? Um, and yeah, thousands, thousands, right? And so, right? That's right. And so. You, there you have Owen um, commissioned to provide a spiritual voice to those endeavors. But even there, as we talk about Owen standing for truth, Owen is unashamed, really, to give a critical voice back at his own government, yeah. um, which uh, he has some really, really impressive things to say there. But, yeah. <laughs> Could you give us some more information about his church? I mean, did they meet every Sunday morning, or how many people were in it? Um, did it grow? Was it what was it like? Yeah, both both were relative, relatively small compared to others. Uh, at Fordham, there were several hundred less than at Cogshaw, which sounds like Cogshaw was 
pretty sizable. But I don't know the exact number, but there were more, more at Cogshaw than there were at Fordham. Um, and so they would, they would meet Sundays uh, for the worship that was prescribed by their government. Um, and that there, would, there would be much more in attendance then. Um, but then they would also meet in these, these private weekly uh, meetings uh, for, for, for those who would call themselves Christians. Did those... they sing hymns or was yeah. there music or um, scripture reading? I mean, what was yeah. it like? Yeah, yeah. So there would be, uh, they would sing hymns. Owen would um, ascribe to the, what's called the regulative principle, um, the, the idea that you, uh, you conduct worship according to how God has prescribed it in his word. Um, he would preach a lengthy sermon. Um, there would be confessions uh, um, of faith. There would be, um, you know, similar to you know what we do here, where there's a uh, a corporate confession, a, a prayer of assurance, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, the the primary the primary feature of of corporate gathering for Owen was the preached word. That was consistent with... Did they have uh, communion every Sunday? Or? There would be, yes. Yeah, so um, these are the, or, and the principles he lays out. Um, I can't remember if it was toward the pastor or toward each other, but there was, there was uh, I think it was toward the pastor. Um, he mentions the ordinances of baptism and, uh, and the Lord's Supper. Um, and they would take the Lord's Supper weekly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do expository preaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So he would um, introduce the text. Um, usually, be a, a verse or two verses. Um, spend. 10, 15 minutes on, on the context of, of the particular passage. Um, then read the text through its, its wider context. And then uh, third stage would, would be doctrine, drawing the doctrine from, from the text. Um, and then there would be lengthy application of the text, um, which... You know, lengthy application, meaning, I don't know if you read through it, maybe 20, 30 minutes worth of application. Um, and, you know, one thing that you can appreciate through Puritan preaching is, you know, you don't get the sense that really anything slipped through the cracks. Like, um, and so you, you're, 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 you're you're addressing the whole spectrum of of human experience and of 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 different um, areas of life that people may be walking and how that that text how that doctrine could be applied um, to convict and build up um, but um, yeah that's that that's probably what what that looked like for Owen um, we have a lot more of his sermons that that aren't in print even. Um, uh, later in his life, where you can um, see a lot of the same features, even as he's as he's older as a pastor, 
Um, now, his political, the, the, the sermons he would preach to Parliament, the, the, now those were much different. You know, those were much, uh, much more laced with, with um, you, you know, uh, aggressive language, I guess you could say. Um, he was, uh, he, and they were, they were more apocalyptic. Um, Owen viewed, you know, his country was, was at war. And so Owen viewed his times much the same way a lot of other religious voices did, that these were the end times, and that uh, what they were seeing was, uh, was God's judgment on an ungodly people. Um, and so um, I guess that's one, one way that those would kind of differ from what was happening in, in church. Uh, but, yeah. Zach, yeah. can you say a little bit about the, uh, to the spiritual ambitions of the royals? If they had their vision crystallized for England, what would it have looked like religiously? And what about that vision would somebody like Owen have thought uh, scripturally unfaithful? Yeah, I think for Owen, it was the institution of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and, and and even the, there was, after following the Book of Common Prayer, there was a directory of public worship, which was um, it was it was more uh, ornamental and and um, you know, ceremonial, prescribed prayers, things like that. Um, I think is 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 the thing that Owen would object to, and the, the direction that the king was having um, religion go. Um, yeah, Owen's Owen wanted those things removed. Uh, Owen was it was it was you know how can we just have the word of God? Um, uh, you know, at, at Oxford there would be you know uh, prayers in Latin, which was repulsive to Owen. Um, and uh, I, I, my take is is that you know Owen wanted things clear and plain and simple and. I think the direction of religion under the king was was going a different direction for him, um, but but Owen would you know later later in his life he would you know he would act like he was never he was never against the king. He talks about his glorious memory and uh, and how how Owen was not you know say he never objected to the king and his his righteous rule and things like that. And it, it's puzzling, right? Um, but we can. Get there at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm curious about. You said he left Oxford. Um, maybe some of the things you just said explained it, but I'm curious if you could say some more about that, because it sounded like you said he really wanted to be an academic, but there was something about the changes that made him like cross the line. So in what way? Like, okay, maybe you don't like prayers in Latin, but I mean, he could. You're, is it that he couldn't tolerate those, or were there just things? Were they forcing him to do things that he thought were sinful, or where where did he draw the line? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, I, it, it it would be things like that. It would be like prayer, prayers in Latin, but it was also a, there was also a dominant system of belief that was, um, you know, that was there at Oxford while he was there, and that was you know a system of Arminianism, um, which. Owen felt was was unscriptural um, and uh, would lead to ungodliness. He he thought it was even blasphemous. Um, uh, just the system of belief that that would, I guess, lower 
um, uh, have a lower view of, of God's sovereignty, particularly in salvation, um, and maybe elevate uh, man's ability to reach out to God. Those were things that were being taught at the school, um, and that, that comes under William Laud. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think a lot of it was, was the theology, um, but then there was also what, what was taking place and what was in practice, which was you know, these Latin prayers and um, you know, just more formalities and things that, that he just, you know, he hadn't been brought up believing. And then maybe um, a related question. Yeah. There, were, there were no other schools that he could attend that would help him with an academic... Probably program. not in England. I mean, I mean there, were, there would be other colleges, but, I mean, he could have attended Cambridge. But, it, um, but the, the direction of Christian education and worship was, was all wrapped up in the politics of the time. Um, but, um, yeah, but... Um, you know, he, he had to give up his, his hopes for an academic career then, but, um, you know, he would regain this, and, and he would become vice chancellor of Oxford, in fact, uh, under Cromwell's rule, um, not, not long later, not, not long after. But, yeah. I wonder if real quick you could give us, like, just a quick, like, overarching historical timeline, because you mentioned war, that England was going to, I, you know, I know myself, I'm only very little familiar yeah. with the deposition and restoration of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Was that the only thing that was going on at the time, or was there another war that you were referencing? Yeah, for, for, for this, I'm, I'm just talking about the Civil War, the English Civil War, so 1642, it breaks out, and, and, and this period until maybe 1648, 1649, where uh, Cromwell is uh, becoming... Uh, Kind of a, a leader um, and uh, leading this this army. Uh, then you have this period of, under Cromwell uh, up until um, right up right up until about 1660, where you have um, you know his his son Richard Cromwell, who has a brief stint um, uh, over England, and then Charles's son uh, Charles II would be restored as king in 1660. Um, and so um, the period in Owen's life where uh, he kind of rises to his, his greatest peak, at least temporarily speaking, is, is in the 50s. Um, and then at the, at, at the restoration of Charles, uh, uh, Charles II, now Owen's you know, back on the downhill. Now you have this legal category of descent, um, and Owen is going to be, you know, a dissenter, a marginalized person for the rest of his life. Um, as a, as a book talks about um, the experience of defeat, and that was Owen's experience um, for this this little bit that we've talked about here. Um, things would change in the fifties, and then from the sixties to the end of his life in 1683, uh, it, it would be a matter of maintaining Christian fidelity while under, you know, some of the most intense persecution. Um, he probably couldn't have even imagined at, at this point. Um, that's, yeah, I guess that's kind of a framework for thinking about his life. Yeah. 
Any other questions? Yeah, I was just interested in the emphasis on unity in in the fifteen. Uh, I was just. I guess what my question is. I always thought of well, there were there were there were churches like Owens that were um, you know dissenting from the royalist position. And then there were more royalist churches. But within those churches, was there a lot of tendency toward division during that time? Um, all we have are, you know, some of the quotes that, I, that I've read about, um, you know, Owen talks about their disunity, and he talks about the temptations that they face. Um, and so you read a lot of that thinking that this is really a matter of, of their context, you know, of, of, of what they're facing in, in their lives being Christians who um, want to worship a particular way but aren't able to do that with, you know, without, you know, s- some oversight or, um, or at least the threat of, of persecution. So I, th- I think that's where, you know, Owen seeing disunity. Um, beyond, beyond that, I, I don't really know. Um, uh, Beyond what, what what they're facing from the government, I think a lot of that had to do with with what he's describing. Um, but um, it also seemed I, I mentioned that that the church in, in Cogshaw it, it had been you know influenced a lot by uh, or I mentioned that at Fordham it had been influenced a lot by by um, the reforms that were taking place at Oxford. So um, you know a lot of their their disunity could have also been result of, you know, um, poor theological education, um, you know, and you see him trying to educate them with these catechisms. A lot of them perhaps didn't, didn't know their Bible, at least in the way that Owen hoped they would, um, which could have been a point of, um, you know, just un- unfamiliarity with what it would look like to be a faithful Christian, uh, what it would look like to be a, a Christian covenanting with others. Yeah, I guess that's that, that's it. Well, um, I mentioned next week, um, Lord willing, we'll talk about Owen in Ireland and uh, some of the things that took place there, and, and maybe some some Christian virtue that that we could find and and, and apply to our lives there. Thanks.